Hello and welcome, <coughs> my faithful and loyal readers <coughs> and listeners. I'm going to do another special segment to get us all caught up uh, to the Bible in one year. So we're going to be doing days 194 through... Day 198, so we're going to be covering four days worth of material. <coughs> so if you have missed any of these segments, if you want to read them, if you want to read our verse of the day also, get caught up with those segments, you can do so by visiting Upstate christian.com Once again, it is upstatechristian.com <coughs> So we're on to, we're going to start with day 194 and we're going to work our way through day 198. So we're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. So what we had seen previously was we had seen the miraculous healing of a man who had been born lame. So, what we're now dealing with <coughs> is the aftermath of that healing, which sparked another round of, another period or round of persecution for the apostles. So, if you have been following along, you have hopefully picked up a pattern that has developed, been developing throughout the book of Acts. And that pattern is at any time <coughs> there was a massive move of the Spirit, such as what happened with the healing of this man born lame at the city of the Temple Gate called Beautiful, right? <coughs> was this massive move of the Spirit was almost always followed by an attempt to stamp out this move of God by those that were hostile to it, by hostile forces. In other words, the Spirit would move, God would move, and something big and powerful and bold would happen that would cause the kingdom of God to expand, that would cause the kingdom of God to be advanced, to grow, <coughs> and Satan and, and his evil forces would come along and try to stamp that out, they would try to damper it down, they would try to do away with this move so that God's kingdom very least would not advance, and, it, and in, their, in their best case scenario, the kingdom of God can actually begin to decline. And so the same thing <coughs> happens today. So now we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 5 verse 17. And we're going to go through verse 18. So keep the first two verses for right now. Which says, then the high priest and all his associates <coughs> who were members of the 
party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the, the apostles and put them in the public jail. <coughs> so what is happening here in these two little verses? So what's happening here is that the great response to the gospel provoked the high priest and the Sadducees. Right? And the Sadducees were the group of Jewish religious leaders, a Jewish religious sect <coughs> that did not believe in the resurrection. They only believed in the first five books of the Jewish Bible, which would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they felt that everything else <coughs> was incorrect, was fallacy. So, <coughs> uh, so this, uh, the great response to the gospel provoked the high priest and the Sadducees to jealousy, suggesting that they longed for the high esteem that had been afforded to the early church. In other words, they got jealous, and so jealousy, which is a big-time massive sin that Satan can and will <coughs> use, right? So, because they were jealous, they began to persecute the early church. So what did they do? They arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. So the public jail is was likely the Jewish state prison that was located in Herod's former palace. So normally a prisoner would have been held there for trial, right? Would have been a place to house prisoners that were awaiting trial, not a place to permanently incarcerate someone, or a place to put someone <coughs> where they wanted to try to persuade them to change their view on something. here, right, was not they were being held for a trial. What they were being held for was to douse the revival fires that these apostles and their followers, the early church, had been arousing. Uh, <coughs> so now we're going to pick up in verse 19. And we're going to go through verse 28, which says this. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, and they had been told began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called 
together the Sanhedrin, and the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. That the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force, as they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. <coughs> so the story that we see here is almost humorous. In fact, it would be humorous if the subject matter was not something so serious. So, why is it so humorous, right? Because while this account of the Sanhedrin was meaning to determine how they were going to put the apostles on trial, what crime they were going to charge the apostles with, right? The apostles, who had been set free by an angel, were openly preaching the word of life to the people. So, what happens? What happens is the council says, hey, to the guards, go, hey, go get these men out of the prison. And they go to get these men out of the prison, and what they do, they find the prison empty. But they don't only find the prison empty, they find the prison empty with the doors all locked and secured. So, they are at a loss for how these men manage to escape out of this prison. So then they start looking for the disciples, and what do they do? They find them preaching. So then the religious leaders essentially tell these guards, hey, go bring these men back to us. And so they went to go get them, but they did it gently, because they feared these men. Right? They feared, they, didn't, they feared the men, but they also they feared the apostles, but they also feared the people's reaction if they went and got these men by force. If they drugged these men by force before the Sanhedrin, they feared that the Jewish people would stone them. So the charge that was brought against the apostles was essentially a twofold charge. So the first charge was that they were directly disobedient to the council's earlier prohibition. Because you see, earlier, just as the council said, 
they had told the disciples not to teach and preach in the name of Jesus. And the second charge they made against them was that they were accusing the council of illegally putting Jesus to death, which had a great deal of merit to it. Because you see, Jesus was tried before the Sanhedrin illegally, and it was at that illegal trial before the Sanhedrin that the Sanhedrin decided to send Jesus to the Roman court system that had the legal authority to put him to death, to send him there so that he could be put to death. So that charge had a little bit of merit to it. So now we're going to pick up in verse 29, and we're going to go through verse 33. says, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. <coughs> we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So here, here's what we see here, right? We see that Peter answered both charges in the order that they were given, right? He says the reason you disobeyed your strict orders to not preach in Jesus' name is because our obligation is to obey God and obey God's laws first and then obey man's laws. So if there is a conflict between God's laws and man's laws, God's laws win out. God tells you, hey, preach to these people in my name. God tells you to do that. And the state, the government, whatever term you want to use for it, tells you, no, don't do that. Don't do that. You can't do that. It is illegal for you to do that. Your obligation is not to obey that illegal law or that ungodly law since apparently it would have been in this scenario it would have been a legal law even though it would not have been a morally correct law you don't have an obligation to obey that law because it defines the will of God <coughs> and the second charge the second charge that he answered, the second way he answered was that it was God who had vindicated Jesus, whom these men had.
sure would be executed when God vindicated Jesus through the resurrection. So he was addressing the fact that, hey, you don't believe there is no resurrection of the dead. You believe once you die, you're dead. You don't come back, you don't get to come back. Any point in time. You believe that you come back as a person or as a different animal, whatever that whole thing when reincarnation is all about. Never really understood it. Don't really want to understand it because it's a bunch of baloney. But what Peter is saying is that when you die and you die as a follower of Christ, when Christ comes, when Christ calls everybody back home, when Christ calls all those who have believed in him back home at the beginning of the end of time, right, that if you have, if you're already dead, you're gonna be raised up to go in and meet him in the air so that your body can then go to heaven to be with Jesus so that you can return in your new and glorified body at the end of this period of time, sometimes referred to as the tribulation period. <coughs> and so what he was essentially saying was that these men were guilty of Jesus' murder. So Peter's answer so infuriated this council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, so infuriated them that they wanted to execute Peter and the rest of the apostles. So now let's pick up in verse 34 and go through verse 39, which says, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin in order that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he undressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodius, or Theodius, excuse me, appeared claiming to be somebody. About 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if they're purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So, 
what we should understand here is the council was largely made of Sadducees, who were generally Roman sympathizers. However, however, there was a small group of the more conservative Pharisees on the council, including a rabbi named Gamaliel, a man held in high esteem. So we need to understand that this man is the Apostle Paul was his student. The Apostle Paul sat at the feet of this man, learned everything, most everything that he knew about the Old Testament and about the law and about keeping the law from this man. So this man played an important part in the life of the man who would write the vast majority of the New Testament and who would help to develop and put into writing so that we could have a better knowledge of and understanding of all of Christian theology. Understand that? So, so here, Gamaliel gives some advice to the council, and his advice to this council is built on the examples of two insurrectionists who are named Theodius and Judas. So both men claim to be somebody. More than likely, in both instances, they claim to be the Messiah. The Messiah that the Jewish people were looking for, not the spiritual Messiah that Jesus was, but a political Messiah who had come to set the Jewish people free from the oppression and the tyranny of Roman rule, right? <coughs> but they obviously were not who they claimed to be because they did not achieve whatever their goals were in their pers- in their respective movements. So essentially, Gamaliel gives this advice. He advises the council to leave the disciples alone. Right. So he advised them to leave alone, which was expedient for the disciples, but it wasn't really very sound advice. Because you see, what he was doing was he was comparing Christianity. He was comparing this brand new belief system. He was comparing something that was nothing like the movements that these men tried to start, which was a political insurrection to the movement that Jesus started, which had absolutely nothing to do with politics. It had everything to do with your heart. It had everything to do with your mind. It had everything to do with things that are not political, but with things that are spiritual. So he did that, so he compared Christianity to a political insurrection. And then what he advised the council to do was wait and see. 
to wait and see. He basically told them, hey, look, if what these dudes are doing off is from God, and it'll succeed and nothing we can do will change that. But it ain't from God. Then it will fail. And there's nothing we can do to make it fail faster. You just need to play the waiting game here. Let's play the waiting game. Let's wait and see if it fails quickly. Or let's see if it continues to spread and grow like a wildfire. And if it does that, then we can know it's from God. So God ended up using Gabriel's advice, his bad advice, to quell the hostility towards the apostles from the council and to provide release for the apostles. So now we're going to pick up in verse 40. And we're going to go through verse 42, which says his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they have encountered worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So the responses of the participants in this trial could not have been more different. As you see, the council had the apostles beaten. So likely what, what happened here was they were given 39 lashes from a whip, which was the prescribed which was the prescribed amount under Jewish law that a man could receive without essentially being given a death sentence. So they were whipped 39 times, they were given 39 lashes with a whip. And they were ordered to stop preaching about Jesus. So this was, this was a politically motivated decision. And they tried to this was obviously a politically, excuse me, this was surely a politically motivated decision as the Sanhedrin tried to navigate their own anger, their own anger at having their orders defied, having their orders disobeyed by this, by these simple uneducated men who probably in their minds didn't know what they were talking about, had no idea what they were talking about, and should not have been talking about what they were talking about. So it was their attempt to navigate their own anger, but it was also their attempt to navigate public opinion, because you see, they knew that the vast majority of people supported the apostles. They agreed with what the apostles were saying, because you've got to remember the vast majority of the people hadn't shown up to, at the Roman courthouse to holler for Jesus' blood. They had stayed where they were in order to not become impure.
group had to flex their muscles in order to, to appear to be in charge. But they didn't want to provoke the people's attention to what was saying here. Because you see, the apostles were held in such a great esteem by the general public. However, on the other hand, the, uh, the apostles rejoiced for being considered worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. And so they immediately returned to the temple and to their individual homes, preaching the gospel with no intention, again, no intention of obeying the council's God-dishonoring instructions. Because you see, the apostles really were worried less about looking respectable and more about being faithful to God and what he had called them to do. As you see, their focus was on eternal things, not temporary or superficial things. You see, the desire to appear respectable to others can hinder a person from effectively pleasing God. So to put that another way, to put that another way, so there's a great credit if the world discredits you for an uncompromised commitment to God. So now let's move on into Acts chapter 6. Right, so the first six verses of Acts chapter 6 are dealing with the first real problem that we see within the early church. And so this first real problem that we see within the early church had its basis in race. I know you're going to think that sounds really pretty strange word and odd. Because many of you have this kind of strange warped belief that the early church was made up of all the same group of people. It was essentially a one-race church. It was made up of one ethnic group. It was, it was made up of multiple ethnic groups. Right? So the two that we see a problem with here was really, we see it was made up of two distinct, really two distinct groups of people, right? So it was made up of what would be called Hellenistic Jews in this passage, which were those who were Greek and therefore spoke Greek. It was made up of Hebraic Jews, right? So you know, you're going to ask, what are Hebraic Jews? So those, those are those people who are Jewish by birth, and therefore spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, or Hebrew and Aramaic, right? And so as we will see as we get into this first six verses of Acts chapter 6, the Hellenistic Jews felt they were being discriminated against by the Hebraic Jews. So let's pick up here in verse 1 of Acts chapter 6, and we're going to go through verse 4, which says this, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be 
right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the Word. So as we have already said, right, the early church included two distinct groups based on the language they spoke. And the language they spoke was based largely on their ancestors. Right, so you have the Hebrews who were native Aramaic speaking Jewish Christians and the Hellenists who were Greek speaking Jewish Christians who were not native, who more than likely were converts at some point in time to Judaism. So what we also should know about this is that it was not uncommon for Jews who had lived outside of the city of Jerusalem to retire there. So what we see here is there's a large number of Hellenist widows. And so, so a large number of Hellenist widows would not have been unusual. Right? Wouldn't have been unusual. So the complaint that we see here seems to have been particularly sensitive and it likely came from two big issues. The first issue was there was an obvious language barrier. The Hellenistic widows spoke Greek. They may have understood a little bit of Hebrew, they may have understood a little bit of Aramaic, but they didn't speak it. So they were essentially outcast because they didn't speak the same language as everybody else. And that was the first complaint. The second complaint is that the, or the second issue, excuse me, is that the Hebraic Jews who were native to Jerusalem would easily have been able to access existing networks. And so the Hellenists would not have had such easy access. So we see a couple, so we see well, uh, one other thing here, right? Because what does it say? What does it say uh, that the end, um, uh, it says it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables that was the apostles speaking, that was the twelve speaking. Right, well, and it goes on to say, brothers and sisters, just seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So what we see here is that good leadership stays on task and it delegates duties to those who are equipped to handle them. That is exactly what the apostles did. Because you see, the apostles' task was the ministry of the word of God and prayer. 
so we need to understand about that, right? Is that normally in the book of Acts? Like the word of God or the single word word refers to the gospel and it does so here as well. So since the pastoral means has these needs for caring for the flock of people were real, the church was to select seven men of impeccable character who were wise and full of the spirit. So these seven men would then organize and administer a relief system to meet the needs of the widows. Now let's pick up in verse 5 and take it through verse 7, which says this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So what we see here, is we see the names of these seven men are all Greek. So what we need to understand is that archaeology has yet to find some of these names in Jerusalem inscriptions. So they have yet to find some of these names listed in listed at the burial sites within Jerusalem. So their Greek names as well as the notation that one was a proselyte from Antioch suggests they were all dysphoric Jews. In other words, they were all people who grew up outside the land of Israel. So to select these men, right, solved the issue of the language barrier. Right? It solved the issue of finding a group of men who spoke Greek, but who also spoke Hebrew and Aramaic so that they could then deal with distributing, getting food from the existing networks that the Hebraic Jews had access to, and then pass that along to the Hellenistic Jews who did not have access to that same network. <coughs> so the laying on of hands here does not definitively mean that a new church office was created, though it does suggest a commissioning for the task. So what we see here is that verse 7 serves as a summary to concluding this episode. So it notes that a large number of priests came to the faith, which in and of itself is impressive, because they were one of the groups of people who had pushed the hardest for Jesus to be crucified. 
So these men, these priests, helped to validate the Christian method. So let's turn to dealing with the laying on of hands and what exactly is going on here with the responsibility that these seven men were given, right? So in the New Testament, the laying on of hands was used in five ways. So way number one, it was used in connection with the miracle of healing. We saw that throughout Jesus' ministry. We saw that with some of the early healings in the early church. So it was also used in connection with blessing others. We see that throughout the book of Acts, that when people wanted to bless somebody, they would lay their hands on them to impart a blessing on them. We'll see that also in the Old Testament, right? So the third way was that it was used in connection with the baptism in the Spirit. So the apostles would lay their hands on somebody in order to baptize them into the Spirit. In other words, to not just so say baptism in the Spirit. We're talking about the allowing ourselves to be allowing ourselves to be filled with the Spirit and then following the direction and guidance of the Spirit. So the apostles would pass that along through the laying on of hands. So we see that in, com in the commissioning of people for a specific work or responsibility as it was used here in this passage of Acts. Right? And so the fifth and final way was it was used in conveying or the recognizing of spiritual gifts by the church leaders. <coughs> so as one of the ways by which God commissions people to use spiritual gifts and also conveys his blessings to people, laying on of hands became a foundational teaching in the early church. And it must not be detached from prayer, because prayer focuses on God, at the source of the gifts, healing, or baptism, and the Holy Spirit, not the person who is ministering. So that's laying on hands. So now let's move into <coughs> the way these men's responsibilities are described. And so that more important to hear, we're going to talk about the two Greek words that are used to describe their responsibilities. So their responsibility was to wait on. That was the phrase that was used. So this is a verb from which the noun deacon comes from. So the Greek word for deacon can be also be translated as a minister or servant. So we need to understand here about this passage before we can move on to the rest of what is going to happen in Acts chapter 6 and then what is what's they going to carry over for that into Acts chapter 7. Right, so what we need to understand by this is that the ordaining or commissioning of these seven men meant primarily two things. 
Number one, it was a public testimony or a recognition by the church that these seven men had a history of showing godly character and faithfulness to the Spirit's leading. <coughs> That's the first thing. The second thing is it was an act of setting these men apart, dedicating them to God's work, and confirming their willingness to accept their God-given responsibilities. So now let's move on. So now we're going to move into the second part of Acts chapter 6. So this is going to be verses 8 through 15, which is kind of the second half of Acts chapter 6. So in the first half, right, we have just seen these seven men be commissioned. So now we're going to move into dealing with just the story of just one of these seven men, a man by the name of Stephen, who would go on to be, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 7, the first Christian martyr. So now let's pick up in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and we're going to hit 8, verses 8 and 9, which says this. Now, Stephen, a man full of God, and then a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose heard from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Joseph Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So, Stephen had been already introduced in the first half of Acts chapter 6 as a man filled with the Spirit. So he did signs and did wonders among the people, yet he provoked the ire disappointed Jews. And so the synagogue of the freedmen that we see mentioned here seems to be the title of an individual synagogue. Since the locations listed in verse 9. Right, so that's where it says Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Phoenicia and Asia. Right, so all of those locations are outside of Israel. They're not within the boundaries of what we would now consider to be modern-day Israel, nor are they within the boundaries of, of that day nor are they within the ancient boundaries of Israel, which would be the promised land that had been originally given to the Jewish people, to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, and then through his son Jacob, or as his name was later changed to Israel understand that. Right? So the synagogue with the freedmen seems to be a title. The title of an individual synagogue. Right? And so since 
these locations are outside of Israel, Stephen may have been evangelizing in this diasporic community. So what we can understand now is that God's favor was Stephen's life because of his de- deep devotion. So God's favor was on Stephen's life, excuse me, because of his deep devotion to Christ and the church. So in addition, the Holy Spirit also empowered Stephen to perform great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And and the Holy Spirit gave him great wisdom to preach the gospel in such a way that his opponents could not argue away the truth of his message, of this message. And they secretly persuaded, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, so now we're going to move on into verses 10 through 15, which say that they secretly persuaded some men to say, uh, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So we see here that the seven who were listed in verse 3 were filled with wisdom. And Stephen demonstrated this quality by the fact that his hostile listeners could not resist his arguments. We just see they were impotent in argumentation. Excuse me, because they were impotent in argumentation, they begin to stir up opposition. So they ambushed him, right? And they drug him before the Sanhedrin, which essentially brought this dispute between a small group of people, right? A small group of almost like-minded people. People that came from the same part of the world, right? It brought this dispute before a larger venue. And so what they then did, this group of people who were looking to essentially um, besmirch Stephen's name, they were looking to get rid of this man in any way possible. So essentially what they then did to expedite this process was they begin to get 
false witnesses so that they could accuse Stephen of committing blasphemy, which was to accuse him of speaking ill of God. Right? <coughs> so, that's essentially what they did. So, the charges changed from blasphemy against God. So, they said he speaks against God, too. They said that um, he spoke against the temple and he spoke against the law of Moses. None of which he actually did. In fact, if we get into the chapter 7, we're gonna see Stephen give this big, huge, massive sermon before the Sanhedrin, in which he does absolutely none of the things these people ever accused him of doing. And so the charges that they brought against Stephen were very likely interpretation of Christian speaking and more probable where they were an intentional an intentional twisting of his very words and so what we see at the very end of this chapter is that his that his or Stephen's face appeared like that of an angel his face was radiant, recalling Moses' appearance in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. And so perhaps that is what it is meant by here. And so now we're going to move into chapter 7. So chapter 7 deals exclusively with Stephen before the same engine. So it's Stephen giving his great sermon, which takes us through verse 53. And then it deals with his sentencing to be stoned to death and his actual being stoned to death, which takes us from verse 54 into chapter 8, verse 1, part A, which is the first half of verse 1 of Acts chapter 8. So now we're going to pick up in Acts uh, chapter 7 verse 1, which says, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance there, not even the ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Even though at that time Abraham had no children, God spoke to him in this 
way for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves God said and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place and he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. And a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their way. Since sent our forefathers on their, on their first visit, on a second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, seventy-five in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and his, where he and our ancestors died. Their body, their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hemor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. At the time draw near, as the time drew near, excuse me, for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt, he dealt treacherously with our people and, oppo and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using God was using him to rescue them. But they did.
toward him and his message. So now we're going to pick up in verse 37 and we're going to take it through verse 38, which says this is but Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness, the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our ancestors, and he received the living words to pass on to us. So the assembly in the desert, or the assembly in the wilderness, refers to Israel as God's chosen people, the ones through whom he would reveal his plans and his purposes to all nations. So in the in Hebrew, which was the original language of the Old Testament, right, the word translated as church is Gehal, which in turn is translated in the Zebuchim, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament as Ekklesia, which would be assembly or church. So there are two important things that we need to understand about this assembly, right? So the first thing we need to understand is that just as Moses led the church of the Old Testament, right, Christ leads the Church of the New Testament. So we need to understand that the New Testament church is called Abraham's seed, which would make it the New Testament church his spirit, Abraham's spiritual descendants. And the New Testament church is also called the Israel of God, which would be the true and spiritual Israel. So this means that the church has a continuity and a connection with God's Old Testament people who would be the people of Israel. So that's the first thing we need to understand about this assembly. So the second thing we need to understand about this assembly is that the like the Old Testament church, the church of the New Testament is in the desert, which means it is a pilgrim church. Otherwise, it's just passing through the world, and we are from our final promised home. And for this reason, we must never become too comfortable with life here on this earth, because it is not our final home. So now let's pick up in verse 39, take it on through verse 47, which says, But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, 
and you don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made the they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made, but God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. And you bring me sacrifices and offerings. Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel, you have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephim, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> but it was Solomon who built a house for him. So Stephen's words here reflect a well-established principle of God's word, proven throughout the history of God's people. And that is that those who persist in rejecting God are eventually given over to the influence of evil, which in other words is the influence of Satan and their own moral desires. And contrary to popular teaching, <coughs> God does not continue to show unlimited love and forgiveness without any conditional response on our part. He does forgive and he does communicate his love to those who, whose hearts are still open and who admit their sin, who turn to him for mercy, who surrender their lives to their lives to Christ, and again following his purposes in true obedience, but for those who harden their hearts, for those who resist God's spirit, and for those who refuse to accept God's gracious gift of forgiveness and spiritual salvation. There's nothing left but to face God's anger and God's judgment. So we need to understand that God has always, God has always laid out a pattern to be followed by his people. So God had a pattern for Moses that served as the standard for godly living under the old covenant. So in Exodus chapter 12, God gave Moses specific instructions for the original Passover in Egypt, which became a pattern for all generations of Israelites to follow. In Exodus chapter 20, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments as the pattern and the standard of moral conduct for all generations to come. In Exodus chapter 25, God instructed Moses to construct a tabernacle as a copy of heavenly things and a symbol of the spiritual salvation that God had planned to accomplish 
through Jesus Christ. You see, Moses carefully made the tabernacle all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that God had designed in the wilderness. So just as surely as God had a pattern for the tabernacle, right, on the old covenant, he has a pattern for his church under the new covenant, which is God's spiritual, God's plan of spiritual salvation and a renewed relationship with people through the life and sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. So the New Testament church leaders did not arbitrarily decide how the church was to develop and function. It was the Father and the Son who was Jesus. Through what the Holy Spirit recorded in the New Testament of God's Word, established the proper pattern for the church. And what we see all throughout the Gospels, all throughout Acts, and all throughout the New Testament letters to the churches, and the letters to the seven churches that we find in the book of Revelation, God lays out a specific instructions for the life of his church. And these instructions apply to local congregations as well as to the worldwide body of believers or Christ's followers. However, tragically, after the time recorded in the New Testament and after the original church leaders had passed away, the church began to stray from God's original revelation. So, church leaders began to modify God's heavenly pattern by conforming to worldly patterns and over-adapting to the surrounding culture. So, in other words, they began to structure their organization according to human ideas and human purposes. And what this has resulted in was the spread of man-made patterns and ideas for the church. So what's the solution to that problem? The solution to that problem is that the church of Jesus Christ is to experience again the full plan, power, and presence of God and God's people as a whole must turn from their own ways and embrace the New Testament pattern as God's timeless standard for His church. So now let's pick up in verse 48 and take it through the end, which is verse 53. Which says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or, will, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Stiff-necked people, your 
hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. So the history of Israel is a story of a people who refused who repeatedly refused to obey their God and his revealed word. So instead of submitting to the wise standards and the restraints of God's laws, their hearts continually turn toward the beliefs, behaviors, and lifestyles of the ungodly nations and the and societies around them. That should sound familiar. It's exactly what is happening today. We refuse to obey God. We refuse to obey His revealed Word to us. And instead of doing all of that, right, what we do is we continue, right, turn towards the beliefs, the behaviors, and the lifestyles of the ungodly people around us and the ungodly societies that surround us. Sounds familiar, right? That's exactly what we do. So the people of Israel also killed the prophets who challenged them to turn back to God and warned them of his judgment if they did not. So it was in these ways they were resisting the Holy Spirit. It is in these same similar ways that we today resist the Holy Spirit. We don't necessarily kill the prophets with stones like the people of Israel did. We find other ways of killing them. We find ways of shutting them up. So don't quit talking about these things that we don't want to talk about, that we don't want to hear. Because it's bad for us. It's bad for our image. So in the same way the Israel of Christ has a new covenant, which would be the church must be aware of the tendency to, to abandon the truth. Just like the Israel of God of the Old Covenant. So Christ's churches, use plural word churches, I'm talking about the local assemblies, those local bodies of believers that make up the global church, right? <coughs> can turn from God and can turn from His Word and refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit and those of us who are followers of Christ who allow this to happen will also experience God's judgment. And so what is God's judgment? His kingdom will be taken from us. Right? And so now we're going to move into this last part of Acts chapter 8, right? Because Stephen has just laid this most excellent case at their feet. He's just given the best 
determined of his entire life. And how does the council react? How do they respond? Here's how they responded, starting in verse uh, verse 54. Here's what it says. Here's how they responded. Here's how they responded. As when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gashed and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So that takes us to verse 56. So remember, we're going to go through chapter 8. Verse 1, part A. Right, so now we're going through Acts chapter 7, verse 56. So here we see that the hearers, those people that were listening to Stephen speak, interrupted him. Why'd they interrupt him? Because they didn't like what he was saying. Stephen was stepping on toes, and he was stepping on toes in a really, really, really big way. So here, so. Given the context of what we had just read, what we just finished talking about, right? It is very, very likely that Stephen was about ready to charge these people with making the temple an idol, with making the place of worship the object of worship. Ooh, that's kind of like what we do today, too, right? We make the place of worship the object of worship. So the contrast here between Stephen and the council could not be made any sharper. Right? So the crowd was enraged to the point of gnashing their teeth. These people were so mad they were. They couldn't even speak proper. They were gnashing their teeth. That's how angry they was. Right? Yet, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he saw the heavenly throne room. And so, in the book of Acts, it is only here that little thing is as the title Son of Man to refer to. He doesn't use it anywhere else throughout the book of Acts. It's only here. <coughs> so what we see here, right, is that as Stephen is being stoned, as he's being prepared to be stoned, right, he sees a vision of Christ, or in other words, the Son of Man, standing by the right hand of so, the New Testament usually refer refers to Christ's position in heaven based on Psalm 110, verse 1, which uses the verb sit. However, here in, uh, so here in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 56, Christ is said to be standing. So, what's up with that? Why the change. Perhaps Jesus is standing to welcome Stephen and the vindicated martyr. 
person was be like a king who is pleased with his subject. Well, maybe Jesus stands to intercede for Stephen in a posture of prayer. However, most likely, this is the most likely scenario, right? Jesus is standing as a witness against the mob. Oh, he's standing as a witness against the mob. Oh, standing as a witness against the mob. Hmm. Hmm. So what we see here is that Jesus promises, um, so we understand that Jesus has promised to acknowledge the one who acknowledges him. So, therefore, Jesus is standing as a witness in the heavenly court for Stephen, even as the earthly court, the earthly Sanhedrin, condemns him. Jesus may also have stood to deliver a verdict. So God is often depicted as rising to judge his own people. Right, so we see that, for example, in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 13 and 15. The rest of the verses 13 to 15, where God rises to judge the elders of his people. And so we see here that Stephen claims to see Jesus standing at God's right hand. And the Jewish leadership viewed this as a claim of Jesus's deity, which meant from their perspective, G uh, Stephen is committing blasphemy. So now let's pick up in verse 57 and go through verse 58, which says that this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices sounds kind of like some children, right? They covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices, so they couldn't hear what this man was saying, as if that would block out what he was saying, as if that would make whatever he was saying go away. It don't, but they thought it might. So they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this scene is composed of the synagogue of the freedmen. The elders describes the false witnesses and the Sanhedrin itself. So what we need to understand here is that while stoning was typically done by the witnesses in a proceeding, all four of the groups I just mentioned participated here. So the animosity, so we understand that the animosity of the Sanhedrin has been consistent so far, in Acts, they were highly, highly, there was a great deal of animosity between the Sanhedrin and the Apostles, and between the Sanhedrin and the early church. That has been consistent so far throughout the book of Acts. But as we get into Acts chapter 8, we're going to see this animosity be ratcheted up. And it begins here, right? So with the stoning of Stephen, that's where this, where a turning point happens, right? A turning point has been.
no longer just animosity, there's no longer just a little bit of hatred, there's now open hostility, and an outright open attempt to do away with this Jesus movement. Because now they have come out in the open and have said, it's you who put this innocent man to death. It's you who did this. It's you who have the hard hearts who are not following God. We're the ones following God and not the ones following God. And so because they heard this, right, they made an attempt to try to stamp this out. So, what we should understand is that previously the authorities had jailed, they had beaten, they had um, <coughs> threatened, they'd even tried to intimidate believers to stop proclaiming the gospel. But in the case of Stephen, and in every case that would follow after this, right, they to a whole new concept. Okay, so we couldn't get him to stop by jailing. We couldn't get him to stop by beating him. We couldn't get them to stop by threatening him. We couldn't get him to stop by trying to intimidate him. So how else are we going to get him to stop? Aha, uh -huh. we know how we'll get him to stop. We'll murder him. Which is exactly what they did to Stephen. Stephen was murdered by the ruling class of his own people because he dared to speak something they didn't want to hear. So the murder itself was done with a semblance of proper procedure. So what are we talking about there? Was this proper procedure, right? So Stephen was taken outside of the city, right? That's where you had to stone people. You had to stone people outside the city. And he was taken outside the city. And witnesses began to stone him, which was the proper procedure, right? However, however, we're told that they took off their cloaks, which was not part of the formal procedure, but it was more like a practical issue. So what do we mean by that? That means these people were so mad that they wanted to have them of all moments, they could literally throw these stones at this man. They wanted to inflict a whole lot of pain on this man. They just didn't want to kill him quick. Right? They just didn't want to get it over with. They wanted to inflict a lot of pain on this man. And he had dared to speak out against him because he had dared to say, hey, you're the ones did this. Y'all the ones who's in the wrong and I'm the one that's in the right. So their anger got the better of them. So laying their cloaks at the feet of Saul here suggests, suggests that he had some sort of authority here. Even though he was too young at this point in time, to be a member of the Sanhedrin. So why did he have a little bit of authority? Probably because he was the student of Gamaliel. 
but it was Gamaliel who had told the Sanhedrin previously, hey, let's see if this movement will die out. And clearly it ain't died out. So now we have to try to put it out, which is exactly what happened. So now let's pick up here in verse 59 of chapter 7. And take us on into Acts chapter 8, verse 1, which says, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold these, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of they're killing him. So what we see here is that Stephen's last words were similar to Jesus' last words. That look recorded in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Except that Stephen directly addresses Jesus here, rather than the Father. And so his words to Jesus support the belief that Jesus is divine. Right? Which was a very early belief, and it's still a belief among believers today that Jesus is divine, and it is an absolute gospel truth. There is no denying that. So Stephen's last words also reflect Jesus' words on the cross, requesting mercy for his assailants. What we see here is that Saul's consent takes away any doubt as to his opinion in the matter. And as he would later say in Acts 26, verse 10, he voted against Christians. That is what we'll pick up tomorrow as we see the persecution against the early church really begin in earnest. And in order for you to prepare for that discussion, here's what you need to read. You need to read First Chronicles chapter 26, verse 12 through 27, verse 34. Romans chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 5. Psalm 14, 1 through 7. And Proverbs 19, verse 17. So I'm sure you're probably wondering, well, what should I have read before that, other than these verses in Acts? So let me tell you what you should have read prior to that. Right. Here is what you should have read prior to that, starting on July the 13th. That's July the 13th. So here is what you should have read on July the 13th. So on July the 13th, you should have read First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 1. 1st Chronicles chapter 16, verse 
5, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Psalm 10, verses 1 through 15, Proverbs 19, 6 and 7. So then on July 14th, you should have read 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 37 through 43, all the way through 1 Chronicles chapter 18. You should have read Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 24, Psalm 10, 16 through 18, and Proverbs 19, verses 8 and 9. So on July 15th, you should have read First Chronicles chapter 19 all the way through chapter 21. Romans chapter 2 verse 25 through chapter 3 verse 8. Psalm 11, 1 through 7. And Proverbs 19 verses 10 through 12. So that's the 15th. On the 16th of July, you should have read First Chronicles 22 and 23. Some, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 31. Psalm 12, 1 through 8. And Proverbs 19, 13 through 14. And then what you should have read for July the 17th was First Chronicles chapter 2. 24 verse 1 through 1st Chronicles chapter 26 verse 11 Romans chapter 4 verse 1 verses 1 through 12 Psalm, Psalm 13 1 through 6 and Proverbs 19 